0: Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buckin, Communications and Insights Assistant at AMBA. I had the pleasure of speaking to Stephen Frost, who is an expert in inclusion and diversity. We spoke about some of the challenges and opportunities that COVID-19 presents for inclusion and diversity in recruitment and also in the remote working. We also spoke about Stephen's career so far, in particular about his role in the London Olympic and Paralympic Games at implementing inclusion programs. Finally, I heard more about Stephen's new book, which is Building an Inclusive Organization, Leveraging the Power of Diverse Workforce. Here's that conversation. Can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your career, please?
1: Sure. Well, hi, Alan. Uh, my name is Stephen Frost, and um, I work in diversity and inclusion and have done for many years. Uh, my background was commercial in advertising and management consultancy. So uh, undergrad uh, at Oxford and then kind of went into that, that part of the world. Um, and that was great. But, but fundamentally, I thought there were some issues of diversity and inclusion that weren't being addressed. And I went to the States to do a master's uh, in the US and did my uh, master's there. And got very involved in uh, diversity inclusion almost by default. I, um, there was the gay marriage campaign in Massachusetts in 2002-03, which I got involved in. And Massachusetts became the first state in the US to legalize uh, gay marriage in 2004. Um, so I went to the first weddings, which was great. Um, and then also got involved in race work there. So um, as a white guy joining the Black Caucus and uh, getting involved in a lot of race quality work. Uh, I came back to the UK and uh, joined Stonewall, the LGBT plus organisation, and was the, was the first person in their corporate side. So it had been a quite a, um, quite a well-known lobby group, but not so much... Um, uh, in the corporate work. So I led, set up their diversity champions programme, a good practice programme, leadership programmes, benchmarking and so forth. And then after um, after doing that for a while, I joined the Olympics and Paralympics as uh, the chief of staff and head of diversity of inclusion for the London 2012 Games. Uh, I did that for five and a half years, which was... Um, uh, amazing amazing highs and lows quite a, an experience but I think we got some amazing diversity inclusion work done there uh, as, a, as a great team effort and then uh, after that I set up the uh, the company that I'm running now uh, I went back to Harvard and um, became a, a fellow in the women in public policy programs did a lot of work on gender equality um, but also kept going with the race uh, stuff and then um, set this company to really kind of catch the learnings of of uh, London Games and apply them to other companies. And we've grown that over the last few years to, to this, this point. I've written a few books um, on diversity inclusion and uh, teach in a few places like like Harvard and Singapore and Paris and various other places to try and get students to think of this as a core part of leadership before they become big bad CEOs. And, um, and now you're running the company. And uh, I think we're doing some really meaningful work at a very important time to try and embed uh, diversity and inclusion in the decisions while, when they're being made. So that it benefits all of us. So, so that, that's a bit about my background.
0: Wow, that's um, it's so varied, but it's so interesting. When I was searching you before um, we spoke today, one question that really stuck to my mind was, we're obviously switching to a kind of digital recruitment now. Um, for the first time, it's kind of hard to be done globally. Um, and we've been speaking to people who have had to do like eight interview processes. It's completely different over Zoom and you don't get to meet people in person. Mm. i was wondering if you had any thoughts on how this impacted the diversity and inclusion in recruitment.
1: Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? What, what an interesting time. I, I think um, it could go either way. So on the one hand, um, if you think about, Discrimination or bias, uh, or simply inefficiencies in recruitment. The, the remote way of doing it now could help because it could decrease barriers to entry. Right? It could be rather than having to afford a train ticket or um, buy an expensive new suit, or um, navigate your way around an unfamiliar place, it could decrease the barriers to entry and actually it might give you a more flattened, more fair platform for access to allow talent to connect with opportunity with fewer barriers than before. So it could be a really good thing. The flip side, of course, is that it could actually exacerbate bias because, um, you know, accent, um, if it's on Zoom, visual, um, access to technology generally and access to a quiet space to do the interview, right, rather than necessarily shared living accommodation, these could all be issues actually which exacerbate bias and make it harder. So I think, to answer your question, uh, it 's got to be somewhere where how can we actually minimize the downsides and maximize the upsides right and so i think employers who are cognizant of this situation could do things to take advantage of all the decreased barriers to entry but try and minimize um, the the biases that could could run riots uh, in, a, in a virtual world
0: that's really interesting i've never really thought about it in a uh, kind of like space way about having to get a quiet space kind of on that note what about when people are actually get the job or have the job and they're working from home the majority of the time how can leaders best manage diverse teams in this setting?
1: Mm. Interesting isn't it because you know we know people now who've you know got a new job or started a new job in a completely virtual world and so induction and meeting your colleagues and teammates is completely different isn't it? Um, I think it, it means the role of the line manager is even more important because you're not just managing somebody as an employee. Right? This is now actually a key social function in a very remote, virtually connected world. Right? You know, if you have a bad day at work, it's now more significant than it was before. If you have a good day at work, it can be more helpful than it was before because it's a key part of social human interaction. Um, So I think some things that line managers and and all of us can do really are to first of all empathise. So, you know, if I've got a team member who's, you know, living in a palace uh, with very high speed broadband, well, great for them. If I've got a team member who's in shared accommodation is struggling to get a quiet space, uh, think about them. If I've got someone who's got caring responsibilities or kids, you know, how can I time the meetings such that it actually works for everybody? So on my own team, we tend to have team meetings towards the middle of the day, which makes it easier for bed and bath times for kids and school runs and stuff like that. Um, so I think there's, there's, you know, empathy is really important to start with. And then there's just basic things like you know, you've got to adjust your behavior slightly in a virtual world. So, you know, we don't necessarily have eye contact or you can't really necessarily read the non-verbal cues, which can often be, you know, the majority of our communication style. So how can you just pause more? How can you really try and take in more data? How can you do things like just get everyone to say hi and check in at the beginning of a meeting? Because even though that might take up a little time, it means there'll be a more equitable distribution of conversation in that meeting than had you not done that. So just things like that that you can do to make it more connected, make it more inclusive, make it more fun and enjoyable and allow everyone to take part.
0: Hmm. I think those are some amazing tips. I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit more about your experience and particularly in the London Olympic and Paralympic games, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your role in that, and some of the key successes you had, and maybe some challenges that you experienced as well?
1: Mm. Um, sure. So I was I was there 2007 to 2012, so five and a half years, and um, it was amazing overall. But I think the the challenges were were multiple. I think the biggest challenge at the beginning was you had an yeah, immovable deadline, you had incredible scrutiny, incredible pressure, you know, this wasn't just a job, you know, the whole country's looking at you. And if you recall, I think most of the media were kind of negative up until the last moment, where it looked like it was going to go well. So you had to endure a lot of pressure, um, a lot of negativity, a lot of people naysaying, uh, which was tough. I think the other thing was um, you you had really good women and men inside the organization who were really passionate about putting on a great game. So really passionate about diversity inclusion actually, but they saw it as an opportunity cost. So in other words, it was a trade-off, you know, that they had to, you know, sell a lot of tickets, build a lot of venues, um, organize a lot of catering, you know, quite complex things. It's the most logistically complicated event I've ever been involved with in my life. You know, it's it's pretty mind blowing. and so they saw DNI as just another thing to do, another extra piece of work to do. And so, understandably, really good women and men who were passionate about it said, "Well, Steve, you know, look, I really support this, but I've got to prioritise this." Um, and it took us about a year, I think, the biggest challenge in this sense to really persuade people that it wasn't an opportunity cost. It wasn't a trade-off. It was a methodology of how they had to do what they had to do already. And indeed, not only was it a methodology for how you had to do your day job, it could actually help you in your day job. It can make things better. It can make things quicker or cheaper or more helpful or more innovative or more creative or more successful. Um, And that that reframing 180 degrees from it being extra work to it actually being a methodology for helping you get your job done was the biggest challenge. And I think to your point, it ended up being one of the biggest successes because when you had all these brilliant people who were in charge of security or transport or catering or the opening ceremony or the torch relay, realizing that if they just thought about diversity inclusion in a profound way, as it affected what they did, um, what they did could be better right? So the torch relay going to 90% of the country, accessible by public transport within 10 minutes, it going to synagogues and mosques and churches, it, you know, we're having, you know, Alan Turing's, you know, great grandniece running with a torch as, as, you know, including disabled people as well as non-disabled people in the Olympic torch relay, not just the Paralympic torch relay. These were things which just brought it alive and allowed everyone in the UK to connect and allowed people to really feel a part of it and, and that was ultimately free but it it gave it a, a priceless additional quality which I think was, was hard fought for but ultimately um, really gave the games an edge so that, that would be just an idea I think of some of the challenges and some of the successes we had but of course there were there were thousands a bit of a
0: controversial question but do you think that you'd have the same kind of conversations now if the games were held in 2020. Um, do you think it would still be seen as a trade-off and extra work? Or do you think that the world has kind of come round or developed a little bit since then? Well, I think
1: there's definitely been progress. We've always got to be positive, you know, there has been progress, but there's always the possibility and I, I would argue reality that things can slip backwards, right? And so I think you'd always need to advocate this, otherwise it's always got the risk of falling off the radar. So um, I think in some ways we have moved on a lot. I mean, to your earlier question on remote working, I mean, just look at the technological change between 2012 and 2020, right? In, In the last eight years, it's given us way more possibilities to include, but it doesn't mean that human beings don't also want to exclude. And, you know, besides obvious racism or sexism, right, there's a lot of unconscious behavior, which is exclusive. And when people are stressed, when they're tired, when they're busy, when they're full up, when they've got a very high cognitive load and they've got little room for empathy, uh, this stuff can fall off the radar if it isn't framed correctly and isn't given the importance it deserves.
0: That actually kind of leads us on to my next question, which, is about maybe these things slipping when there is a lot going on. And obviously right now there's so much uncertainty in the global economy, and many organizations experienced such tough times. Is there a worry that inclusion inclusion and diversity initiatives will end up taking a back seat as companies are kind of forced to focus on their core activities?
1: Yes. So <laughs> I'll say a bit more, shall I? Uh, yeah. Uh, Yes, there is, right? Um, So if you look at just 2020 and what's happened so far, um, when COVID really hit, and there was quite frankly a lot of corporate panic, uh, they cut budgets. And one of the first things to be cut was diversity and inclusion. Because that suggests that a lot of companies didn't take it as seriously as they should have done. There's really three ways that companies approach diversity inclusion. They either approach it as compliance activity, uh, a marketing activity, or in some cases, a truly embedded decision-making value-add activity, right? And those that really saw it in the first two buckets as marketing or as, as compliance just slash back, right? Um, then Black Lives Matter happens. And, of course, Black Lives Matter has been happening for a long time. Systemic racism has been happening for 400 years. But the the level of Black Lives Matter happening meant that suddenly uh, marketing budgets were back on. And you had all this tremendous, amazing marketing about, you know, how companies really cared. Um, But I would argue that is that profound? Is that sustainable? Is it really meaningful? And it's, it's a mixed bag, right? You, you had, for example, some organizations doing amazing marketing around Black Lives Matter, but now they're just back to how they were before. Whereas you have others who've done stuff and then carried on and are now really thinking deeply about what they do. And, and to answer your question, I think when they've treated it as a compliance or marketing activity, it has fallen by the wayside. But when there's been a more deep thought around this as applied to really what they do. Back to that trade-off idea of the Olympics, right? Going from a trade-off to a methodology where there's been more of that going on. Um, Then I think with this hope that it's going to continue and amplify. So if you look at, for example, COVID trials, right? We've got 80 vaccines under development in the UK and um, traditionally and historically it's been white middle-class people that have been the volunteers in its clinical trials, yet we know that it's disproportionately black and brown people that are dying and that are affected by COVID. Mm. So you've now got a few pharma companies who, in a more profound sense, in this third bucket that I've been alluding to, are now starting to apply diversity, inclusion thinking to what they do. So actually, who's in the clinical trials and how does it ethically and morally, as well as medically and scientifically, result in better drugs, Right. or car companies or tech companies or what have you. And so that gives me hope that there are uh, some companies thinking about this in a far more profound sense, but clearly there's still many where it's it's fallen by the wayside.
0: So. How do, you must have worked with many companies in your time, how do companies kind of go from being this kind of tick box exercise to embedding diversity into everything they do? Do you have any tips on that? Hmm.
1: I mean, it's a journey, right? It sounds cliché, it's a journey. Um, but it's a journey that's got to be a very conscious journey and led by people who can get things done. So um, the tick box is almost, you know, we'll rely on the law, right? The UK has got some of the most advanced legislation in the world on equalities, and, and that's great. So in a sense, the compliance stuff, to a degree, is taken care of. Um, but to then go beyond that, you've got to really engage with leadership, and reframe this as a resource to take advantage of rather than a cost to be you know, incurred. And so that, back to that, that, that reframe we've talked about, away from it being an opportunity cost in the day job to how can I actually make things better. So you know, when I talk to CEOs or HRDs or execs in various industries, how does a deeper thinking about this help them do what they do so in TV and film, right, if you are, you know, not having accurate on-screen portrayal, that's worse telly, right? You know, think about the, the, the whole controversy around David Williams and Little Britain and blackface, right? Or think about the whole uh, debate around so-called cripping up where non-disabled actors play disabled actors, right? You've got to have authentic on-screen representation, nothing about us without us, true. That's better telling, right? It's more accurate, it's more, so there's that. And then the, the follow on thought from that is, well, okay, well, who's behind the camera? How are we actually thinking? Who's making this stuff? Who's telling these stories? Who's writing these stories? Who's, who's speaking for who? And then you get into, okay, well, that's really important too. And So, so TV and film is on a journey now to go from on-screen, which is easier to fix, to off-screen, which is harder to fix, to kind of make more profound, and ultimately not about ticking boxes, but making more um, creatively, commercially successful TV, which you know gets new audiences, win awards, you know gets new commissions. If I'm talking to somebody in tech, you know, and and they're designing algorithms and coding for for driverless cars and we know from a Georgia Tech study in 2016 that driverless cars had a tendency to bump into black people more than white people because the camera-based AI technology can't see darker skin tones well wow. it's why it's why automatic taps you know take longer to come on for black and brown skin compared with white hands right so so when you get into that you're like right Mr. CEO or right Mrs. HRD Uh, what are we doing about impacting the design process? So so we think about then, oh, crikey, right, well, if we don't want cars to be less safe for women, and cars still kill more women than men in head-on crashes, all things being equal, because we've used male crash test dummies, right? we need to think profoundly now of the design process, but who's involved and how we're thinking about it, so that we produce products which are not only ethically and morally just, but they're commercially successful and they're scalable and they can work in different cultural contexts and so forth. So so that's how you go on this journey from from really empathising with leaders and getting to reframe this according to what they do, right? Engineers understand cars. TV people and producers understand telly, right? So therefore, let's talk the language, but let's get them to think about this in a profound way that applies to what they do, and then they're going to do it. Right, rather than just you know treating it as a Friday afternoon activity or a compliance activity.
0: And you've mentioned a little bit about governance and laws, but what do you think of companies, or well, governments you kind know, of making companies have ratios and stuff? Like, what what do you think of that? Do you think it's a good thing or not? I mean,
1: look. Generally, any any compliance or laws which advanced as human rights has got to be a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the short answer without knowing any more detail will be yeah. But I mean, I guess it depends whether then governments are going to be consistent and in it for the long haul. So, if you look at, for example, in the UK, reporting the gender pay gap, which is, for all its you know um, caveats and drawbacks and failings, is generally a really good thing because it actually allows people to look you know, at the difference between what the average woman and the average man is paid. And we know that transparency and accountability are key drivers of driving inclusion and, and meritocracy uh, and a minimum of avoiding corruption. Um, so, so this is great. But in 2020, the government has removed the requirement to do the gender pay gap. So we've decided that there's a trade-off between COVID and actually equality. So I I think that's regrettable. I think that actually you don't stop equality in a crisis. If anything, you accelerate it, right? Um, Because actually women and minorities might be far more impacted by what's going on right now than than already privileged men were. So um, I I think, yes, government legislation is really important. Yes, compliance is really important. Yes, things like the gender pay gap in the UK have been really good innovations and hopefully soon an ethnicity pay gap as well but you've got to apply them consistently and you've got to like stick to it when the going gets tough.
0: Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so one last thing I want to talk to you about is your latest book, Building an Inclusive Organisation, Leveraging the Power of a Diverse Workforce. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and um, maybe some key takeaways?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, you know, this is, a, I think, a really important book because... You know, everybody says, oh yeah, we, we really like diversity inclusion. You know, it's really important, but it falls down at the implementation stage. So we wanted to write a book about how to implement it, right? How to build it. So there's no excuses for not doing it. Um, and I think uh, that it starts off in a fairly uh, dramatic, controversial way with um, a tragedy, with a, a tragedy around a plane crash, the most, uh, the biggest plane crash the world's ever seen and why that happened. And one of the reasons that's never really been fully uh, highlighted is the lack of inclusion, the fact that, you know, you had a very, very experienced male pilot who didn't really listen or include his subordinates who were pointing out some critical data that he missed and resulted in a tragedy. And whilst the airline industry is one of the best industries to improve safety right that they learn they learn they improve not all industries have and so it then goes through you know why we need to do this with some examples what then we need to do with some examples and we look at some case studies to, to offer practical advice and hopefully inspiration from the tv and film sector from the finance sector from the medical sector from the academic sector to show actually how you can build inclusive organizations and you know make them better for the people that work there, for the customers, for, for us all, really. Um, and then it kind of ends with a call to action that, look, we've offered the evidence, we've offered the why, we've offered the how. Um, now, really, it's down to you to take these learnings and, and enact them uh, and, and not just do it because, you know, you have to, but do it because it's genuinely uh, a good thing for you, your career, your organisation and, and the wider world
0: amazing that sounds so interesting um, Emil, well, thank you so much for talking to me today it's been an absolute pleasure oh,
1: did I? Um, thank you for the questions Ellen
0: thank you so much for Stephen for being on the podcast today if you'd like more about leadership head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast